I want to be able to bat ideas around, even if it's not evidence-based, right? Like just to test them out. There are places for that kind of idea testing that the classroom, it really should embody that. And it's tragic to me that we are making it into this kind of bloodless, dour, <laughs> hyper-serious exercise where everyone's views on everything are fixed and must not change. And that's disturbing. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I have been incredibly keen to see Donald Trump defeated at the ballot box and removed from American politics through the popular will since the beginnings of his rise. Nevertheless, I have at many junctures been skeptical about attempts to remove him from our politics by other means. I never went along with hopes of using the Electoral College to persuade some electors to change their mind. I was skeptical of both of the attempts to impeach Donald Trump in good part because they predictably failed in many ways strengthening rather than weakening his position. I also was skeptical of the charges against Donald Trump in the state of New York because they seemed to be based on a very dubious legal theory and were advanced by a prosecutor who had made it a key part of his campaign to go after the former president. The federal charges which have now been filed against Donald Trump look a little different. This is not because he would be the first politician to treat classified documents in an irresponsible manner. Others, including Joe Biden, Mike Pence, and yes, Hillary Clinton, are guilty of the same. But it is because of the stunning evidence in the charges which have now been filed that Trump knowingly, repeatedly, and explicitly tried to subvert the course of justice and tried to lie about the documents in his possession, tried to conceal their existence from the federal government and even from himself, apparently fell in a blatant way into the classic trap of committing a series of crimes in the attempt to cover up a would-be crime. These pieces of evidence are sufficiently clear that it would be very hard for any law enforcement official who is simply trying to apply general standards to decline to charge Donald Trump. Some of the claims made by supporters of Donald Trump are also erroneous or willfully wrong. Adrian Vermeule, the Harvard Law Professor, who is one of the leading post-liberals, for example, 
claimed on Twitter that a recent article I wrote about Poland does not seem to apply to the United States. But in Poland, there is now a commission which has been instituted by the government, which can disbar people from running for public office for 10 years without any legal recourse. It is a manner of partisan people on the commission being uh, prosecutors, judges, and the jury all at the same time. In the United States, Donald Trump will, and of course should, enjoy every privilege of a defendant to criminal charges, including many protections within the way in which the legal process will play out, and of course, a independent-minded jury. So I think that these charges appear from everything we know at this juncture to be justified. And I can only hope that they will have a legal and even more so a broader cultural effect that Trump will be found guilty unless he can provide compelling exculpatory evidence and that many Republican primary voters who are not part of a MAGA base will finally decide that this is the moment to get off the Trump train, that they would rather be represented in the 2024 elections by somebody else. But hoping is not predicting. And I also remain very apprehensive about the ways in which the next months may bring even greater peril for the United States. It remains entirely possible that Donald Trump will be found innocent or that a jury will deadlock, allowing Trump to claim, even if falsely, that he has been exonerated of the charges against him. He would then be a very formidable candidate in 2024. And there always remains the possibility of a 2024 election in which a relatively unpopular incumbent who may face worse health within the next year is competing against a jailed former president who somehow ekes out a victory. So it would be hugely premature to celebrate the indictment of Donald Trump. And it remains a very sad moment that such an indictment of a former president has become necessary because of his reckless and apparently illegal behavior. We can hope that this is finally the beginning of the end of Donald Trump but it is too early to assume that it'll turn out to be so. And now an announcement for listeners in the United Kingdom. Come join us on Monday, July 3rd at 6.30pm as Persuasion's London Social Chapter hosts a discussion on the future of the left with the Equiano Project. 
We'll have drinks and a panel at the Sackford Pub in Farringdon. It's the Sackford Pub, S-E-K-F-O-R-D-E, and a chance to meet some of the Persuasion team. For more details, visit the events page on the Persuasion website, or just come and join us on Monday, July 3rd at 6.30pm at the Sackford Pub. My guests today are Amna Khalid and Jeff Snyder. They are both professors at Carlton College, and they have started to write a lot of really interesting texts in the last year or so, criticizing some of the progressive orthodoxies on college campuses, but also opposing very clearly some of the attempts to use the state to restrict academic freedom and free speech that come from the right in the United States. We had a really fun conversation about dynamics on American campuses today. Why it is that a small ideological minority holds such outsized power? why this shouldn't drive anybody to embrace the kind of illiberal laws restricting what can be taught in higher education that we've seen in Florida and other states, and most importantly, how to stand up for these kind of philosophically liberal, humanistic, universal values without becoming bitter, without becoming reactionary, without coming across as a jerk. Amna and Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, you've really come to my attention not that long ago, but you've been on a great spree of writing really interesting things. And one of the things that draws me to your work is that I think we share a basic sensibility of being quite worried about some of the things that are happening on campuses, some of the things that are happening on parts of the American left. You wrote very interestingly, for example, about some of the events at Hamline University last fall where an instructor was put under enormous pressure because she had shown after duty advertising it an important historical piece of Islamic art, which represented Prophet Muhammad. But you're also very concerned about the sort of reactionary response to some of the stuff from the right and have been very vocal in criticizing, for example, some of the kind of anti-CRT bills that Ron DeSantis has passed in Florida. Before we get into the sort of political dynamics of this, what's the reason to be concerned about some of the things that are happening on the left? And why is it that the response to that from big parts of the American right nevertheless feels off. The way I'd start this is I think it's important to do self-critique as two people, I think, and I speak for Jeff over here, associate as being on the left of the spectrum. We've been really disturbed by how little self-critique there's been. And every time there's been an attempt to critique, there is the counter-attempt to cancel or to reject or to dismiss. And that kind of environment is just not conducive to deep thinking. Now, what's worrying about this is that if this was happening elsewhere, one could tolerate it. But when this starts happening on college campuses, which are the designated spaces for deep thinking, I think we need to be terribly alarmed and we need to be very, very concerned. I'd also say, for me, it's also personal. I come from Pakistan. I grew up over there and I've seen an education system being dismantled and the impact on democracy, our democracy in Pakistan, of that. So 
I have reason to be concerned, not just because of what I'm seeing here, but also because of how I know things play out in contexts outside of the U.S. Let me jump in before we get to Jeff. One thing that I find striking is that many of the people who've been most courageous in speaking up against some of these tendencies on the left, who themselves come from the left, have some experience with a feeling of, you know, there are things you cannot say in their upbringing. So there's an interesting number of people who grew up in very evangelical Christian communities who left those communities because they felt so constrained and who then speak quite compellingly about suddenly I started to feel at my job or at my university, but there's these things I was not allowed to think and these things that I'm not allowed to discuss. And I couldn't stand for that in the same kind of way that I couldn't stand being part of my original communities. And I've heard some of the same things from people who've come from dictatorships and so on. So it's interesting that there's a sort of echo of that in what you're saying. No, absolutely. There's a strong echo. And I will say that I grew up in Pakistan where, you know, it's pretty repressive. And I did grow up under a series of military dictatorships. And there is also the kind of tyranny of a particular version of Islam that one has to conform to. So, you know, to be fair, I don't want to portray Pakistan as this totalitarian state. There is plenty of agency that people have, but nonetheless, it is sharply constrained along certain axes. And I do believe, and I've noticed this as well, that in academia too, the people who are most critical right now of the left are actually people who've come from outside or are either immigrants or have had a lot of time outside the US and therefore are familiar with how things go down. I can talk at length about American isolationism, and I will, but I'll hand off to Jeff now, and we'll come to that later. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're trying to get a perspective on your own culture and society, right, there are two basic things that you can do. One is you can read history. The other is that you can travel. So after I graduated from college, I lived abroad for four years, including in the Czech Republic for two years, and then in China for some time. And it was through those experiences, uh, talking to people in the Czech Republic who had lived through being an Eastern Bloc country, in China, talking to political dissidents, both inside and outside of China, getting that sense from them, not having experienced it, but getting that sense from them of that visceral sense of being censored and censored with real consequences attached, <laughs> like prison, for example, if you're a Chinese dissident, a Uyghur dissident, Tibetan dissident. So it was through that experience traveling and getting to meet people that I kind of by proxy started to really develop an understanding for why free expression, especially political expression, matters so much. One of the things that strikes me is that some of the mechanisms in those places are similar to the mechanism that I perceive in my own social milieu in the United States, including the fact that defending somebody who has been accused of some kind of political crime is itself something that makes you suspicious, could itself be seen as a kind of crime. What's very different, of course, in a significant way, is the extent of punishment. And there obviously is a huge difference between a place where you might lose your job and all of your friends, which is by no means trivial, and a place where you might go to prison or might have you know, government agents following you around. And that is obviously worse, and we have to keep that distinction clear. What is it that we're talking about here? When we're talking about certain lines you cannot cross or certain things you cannot talk about, where is that concern on campus? Because one of the extreme ways that people put this on Twitter is, you all are just people who, you know, want to be able to say the N-word or something like that, right? There's this sort of strain of people who say, you know, the only things 
that are considered beyond the line on campus are things that are so obviously awful and so obviously gruesome that no decent person would want to do them. Now, you might argue with John Stuart Mill that no line should exist for a principle of it and so on, but I take it that you think that there are things that reasonable people might do or think, like perhaps show this early representation of Muhammad in a piece on the history of Islamic art that was at the time very much part of the tradition, that whether you think it's right or not, at least reasonable people should be able to do whether or not you would do it yourself. Where do you think those lines are on campus or in the culture today? It's an interesting question, Yasha. I would say that the lines are much more narrow than people would like to think, and maybe narrow or wide, it depends on how you're seeing it. But I would say that it's not just about not saying the N-word, right? It's not about these things that we would consider egregious and any reasonable person would say this should not be said. There is a culture of censoriousness on college campuses. Now, I'll speak from my experience of having taught at Carleton College, which is an elite liberal arts college. It's not quite like Evergreen or Oberlin in terms of the for the lack of a better word, I don't like using it, but the woke culture. But nonetheless, it's a college where we draw from a very similar pool of students. It's sort of a mainstream elite liberal arts college, right? I mean, there's places that are famous for being uber progressive, and Carlton certainly is a very progressive place, but it's not the place where people go to be the most progressive possible. It's simply a sort of, you know, selective, prestigious, small liberal arts college. Yeah. And even here, it's interesting to see that there is a culture of censoriousness. In fact, I've been teaching a class on the global history of free speech for the first time this term. And one of the questions I asked my students is, you know, how often do you feel you can't express your views? And by, you know, I mean, political views, things that count. And a 100% of them on the survey said, you know, often. So that to me is quite telling. And I've also found it interesting that students in my class have reported that this is one of the few places where they feel that they can actually speak their minds and there are ways in which I've facilitated that. But that speaks to me about the wider culture on campus. And there really are new pieties that one does not violate. And they're not just egregious ones. They're more ideological and more defined than that. Yeah, there were many awful, terrible apocalyptic elements of the Trump presidency. But just to take the perspective of free expression and free speech, one of the tragedies, honestly, at least in my view, was the ways in which free speech became associated with the right wing and a very conservative extreme faction of the right wing, right? So when our students hear of viewpoint diversity, they think of Milo Yiannopoulos. They think of these extreme conservative speakers who basically were trolls who cloaked themselves in the mantle of free expression. So I've had this conversation with my students many times. It's like, well, viewpoint diversity, like, why do we need Milo Yiannopoulos on the campus? I'm like, no, we don't need Milo Yiannopoulos on the campus. What I'm talking about at a place like Carlton, where you're describing kind of a mainstream social progressivism, let's just take the example of affirmative action. So I think the overwhelming majority of people on this campus, whether they've thought about it deeply or not, would just be in favor of race-based affirmative action. So with my students, I'm like, look, if you want to talk about affirmative action from a viewpoint diversity angle, you're not going to bring in Ben Shapiro or Ann Coulter. Let's bring in Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, who clearly is a liberal and social progressive in many issues, but is vehemently opposed to affirmative action because she thinks it distracts us from the larger inequities in the K-12 educational system. Let's bring in Glenn Lowry, you know, Glenn Lowry, of course, who will talk about 
affirmative action as assault on black excellence. By the way, just to briefly interrupt you because you brought up Michelle Alexander, who I should try and have on a podcast sometime, I suppose. I was sitting in a bookstore, very nice bookstore in a college town that has, you know, a kind of liberal arts college that's also a prestigious place. And it's lovely, you know, I mean, all the books are sort of painfully progressive, you know, with no exceptions and so on. But it's a very nice bookstore with a you know, nice collection. You can have tea and coffee then. You can sit there and do some work or, you know, meet students or whatever. It's very nice. Um, and I overheard this conversation, which still puzzles me. It was about a year ago of somebody trying to order a copy of Michelle Alexander's The Jim Crow, which is one of the big publishing successes of the last 10 years. Um, generally, so it seems very progressive. And the shop assistant said, sure, one second. And then, and then, oh, I'm sorry, we can't order that for you. And the customer said, why not? And the shop person said, I'm not quite sure why, but it's on our do not reorder list. I think Michelle Alexander is problematic. So at least in this one particular bookstore in this college town, Michelle Alexander, for reasons that are a mystery to me, has been cancelled from this one bookstore. I still don't understand why, and it seems like an individual idiosyncratic quirk, but it is a funny aspect of a kind of culture you would get in a place like that, that the owner of his bookstore, who I believe is a white woman, would somehow take it upon herself to decide that this very successful African-American author is very left-wing, somehow doesn't pass her personal purity test, and the bookstore really shouldn't reorder Michelle Alexander. Yeah. Well, that is one of the things that I see as being so damaging to campus discourse and to classroom discussions is that idea that if you voice a single opinion, take a single position that is heterodox, people will write off not just everything else you have to think, but they'll write <laughs> off your moral character, right? And you can be socially ostracized. So I wanted to come back to this point about guilt by association, because I do think that in spite of the difference, if I see a headline that says, you know, college campuses like Mao's China, I instantly go to a new tab. Like, I'm not going to bother reading something that's that absurd and hyperbolic. But I do think that idea of thou shalt not have any kind of affiliation, draw any lines of solidarity, give any hint of respect to people who hold views on the other team quote-unquote, is extremely damaging in a higher ed environment because, looking to what Anna said earlier, it should be the one place where we can do what the liberals always say, which is follow the data and follow the science. So to me, it's very interesting that a college campus, you could have an argument with people about climate change and, we, oh, the, the evidence is overwhelming. Of course, we should pay attention to the evidence. They say, okay, well, we all just did a six-month stint of anti-racism training. Do you know what the evidence says there? So there are certain lines of inquiry that are completely closed off. And if on a college campus, you can't do that, let's look at the data, let's step back and look at the evidence, I don't see where else on earth you can do that. And it's not just about the data. I, I would argue that it's also about, you know, you just want to be playful sometimes with ideas. Mm. I think we've become so serious and terribly dour. We've taken the joy out of learning. Mm. And this kind of atmosphere, this kind of censoriousness really does kill that pleasure. To me, I want to be able to bat ideas around, even if it's not evidence-based, right? Like just to test them out. There are places for that kind of idea testing that the classroom, it really should embody that. And it's tragic to me that we are making it into this kind of bloodless, dour, 
hyper serious exercise where everyone's views on everything are fixed and must not change. And that's disturbing. This is to me sort of one of the things that I always think about. I mean, I loved my time in college because more than anything else, I had a set of friends whom I could debate the world until 2 or 3 a.m., playing with ideas in that kind of way. And it was serious play in the sense that, you know, we were not provocateurs and we were not, you know, trying on ludicrous ideas to offend or outrage we were trying to think in a serious way what we think about the world, but we had the freedom of play in trying on positions and thinking them through in saying, if I say this, does that sound right or not? Am I able to defend it against my friends or not? It was in a way a very serious process, but one that could only succeed and could only feel so joyful because it had that element of play within it. We should get back to this idea that somehow we've lost free speech as a left-wing tradition, even though it has always been a left-wing tradition, it's been defended also in American history by people like Frederick Douglass in really moving terms. But even more shockingly to me is the sort of new consensus on certain spaces in social media and so on, that you know, the idea that you would want to encourage college students to debate. Of all the times I've been raised of on Twitter, and I'm glad to be mostly off it, the one that really struck me is when I said something about you know, it being nice for college students to be able to debate. And people said, you know, that's such a whatever idea of what college is about. Nobody wants to debate. And it's like, I was completely racial for the idea that one of the things you should be able to do, and one of the things that is joyful about a college education is to be able to debate your view of the world with your friends in order to come to a better understanding of what you think about things. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the Trump derangement syndrome was real to the extent that for many people on the left, very meaningful distinctions totally collapsed, Mm. right? So for me, is it reasonable to debate what our border policies are? Of course. How could we have a democratic society if we can't talk about our border policies? But so quickly, if you introduce that topic, students will make, I don't know whether it's two, three, or four kind of leaps to say, well, wait a second, are you debating the right of Mexican immigrants to exist? Are you endorsing Trump's statement that all Mexicans are drug dealers and rapists and that are not sending their best people? Of course I'm not. So that collapsing of distinction, you see that across the range of issues. I mean, one of the big ones, right, would be discussions about trans issues. Mm. You know, we shouldn't debate my right to exist. If you're debating the role of, we were just talking about this last night, the open question to me, it's open at least, of trans athletes, right? How does that work? How are we going to make sense of that? The idea that for some students or for some people online, this is a topic that you can't touch and you can't debate it, just seems like a massive confusion of scale and scope and proportionality. And I think if there's one thing we should be doing on a college campus, it's teaching students to make distinctions. And hopefully they'd be able to make finer distinctions. These are gross distinctions. But that should be our first critical thinking step to be able to sort out what's a useful debate from what's a nonsense or a bigoted debate. One thing that I'm trying to understand is why the power on campus plays out as it does. So I teach some of these controversies in some of my classes, not all of my classes, of course. And I'm always struck that a clear majority of students wants to think 
about many of the urgent cultural issues of the day. I have a week on free speech and a week on cultural appropriation, for example, and a whole bunch of other topics. Most of them are very open to doing so. They're actually very glad to have a space where they can do this in a meaningful way. But then sometimes it's hard to get them to talk. And when you speak with them in office hours, it's because the presence of a few people within the group were sort of known to be moral enforcers, or they're known to be people who might misrepresent what was said in the classroom in an Instagram or a TikTok post that shames people in ways that then have very real social consequences for them, especially given the sort of nature of the American campus where you live and work and are surrounded by your peers all of the time. So being ostracized is a very serious form of punishment. And so what I don't quite understand, and you see it in a microcosm on the American campus, we see it in a bigger way in American elite institutions and society. Why does this small ideological minority of students hold this outsized power? How is it that even though, broadly speaking, I would say the kids are all right and the students are inquisitive and they might have assumptions that are more progressive in mind or that are more quote-unquote woke in mind. I might disagree with them on a bunch of things, but most of them are good people who want to think about the world and we're open to discussion. But why is it that the few who don't hold this outsized power to shut down debate and to intimidate and to punish? I mean, I think that it's a collection of factors, right? There is that social pressure that you mentioned. And I think as of recent surveys, you know, that they also prove that students are more scared of each other than they are of the professor in the classroom. So it's a social implications. But I think in great part, you know, there are two other pieces. One is that things get amplified on social media. Even for a real campus, the virtual world is constantly interacting. So there is a way in which what you say in the classroom isn't just going to be talked about by your peers on campus, but might even make the Twitter sphere, right? The other piece, I think, is how administrators have responded to student complaints. And, you know, it's not the students, like you said, students can be progressive, mostly they're fine. This is their age, they can have difficult problems problematic views, I have a lot of patience for them. But where it kind of wears thin is when we're talking about administrators and how quick they are to respond to student needs and student demands and complaints. And that, of course, is connected to you know, what's happened to higher education and the neoliberalization of higher education where we don't think about the public good anymore. It's very much a customer is always right kind of approach. And the growth of administrators on campus far outstrips the renewal of faculty lines. If anything, faculty lines are being cut. So I do think that this kind of influence that a small minority can have is because of a whole bunch of factors that have made it possible for them to exercise way more power on campus or in the public sphere than before. You know, I agree with a lot of this, but there's a point on which I disagree, which is that I think we like to blame the sort of marketization of higher education, but it strikes me that the main mechanisms of higher education are remarkably insulated from the market. So let's think about what kind of scholars get hired, for example, for positions. I think one of the things that has led to a little bit of self-correction in journalism recently is that, you know, the New York Times is very ideological, younger staff. They would like to impose a certain kind of views, but they also get a lot of reader comments which show very clearly that many articles in the New York Times are ridiculed and loathed by subscribers of the New York Times who leave these kinds of comments. And the newspaper needs to sell subscriptions and needs to find an audience. And that's a kind of correcting mechanism. In academia, what you need to do is to publish in journals, which are entirely recruited 
by faculty members. And, you know, I think actually if it was which faculty member can attract the largest number of students or which faculty member has residence outside the campus, which faculty member even can sort of increase the a name of university outside of campus, you would end up with a little bit more variety than you do in these mechanisms that are actually very insulated from a market in any kind of you know, real sense. And the same strikes me about the sort of customer service approach where, you know, yes, one of the big problems is that administrators have much more power than in the past. Administrators are more illiberal according to all kinds of surveys than faculty members are. But again, the average student's preferences, I think, are more sensible than the kind of culture that those administrators often are advancing and pushing forward. And there's as many students who are quietly feeling put off by this than the ones who are actually served by these kind of strictures. So if you had a genuine market approach or a genuine, I'm not saying that marketizing university would be the solution. That's not what I'm saying. But, but it doesn't strike me that this sort of customer satisfaction model, I and mean, then you would have anonymous surveys that the university administration does, and then the university would move in the direction of what students express in anonymous surveys, and then they would be really worried about the kind of finding that you had in the survey in your class, but most students feel constrained and I assume upset by the fact that they can't express themselves. But that's not what the administration is doing, and there it seems that, you know, it's just the power of certain kinds of accusations, or the power of pressure from your social environment is much deeper than anything else. One of the lines that I've recently started to think of is that, you know, there's idealists and there's materialists, and I'm a dinner partyist, which is to say that I think what drives the action of many actors in society is how will what I do affect the kind of reception I get at the next dinner party I go to with my friends and colleagues and neighbors? And that seems to me there's something about 5% of the student body express one kind of preference. And 50% express another kind of preference. If the preference of 5% is in the direction of being more progressive and they're willing to make terrible accusations against the 50%, but even if these accusations are ungrounded, they win. And I don't think that's just explained by customer service or anything like that. So I take some of what you're saying, and I think you're right. When you talk about academia and it being insulated from market forces, I think when you're talking about publication and research, that's a different environment from teaching. So I want to say that is far more insulated, even though some pressures are there too. But I think on college campuses, particularly, you know, like Carlton, where students pay, and they pay a heck of a lot of money to come, there is that general idea which is in the air, which is we are paying, we are entitled to something. So there is that sense of entitlement, which I think the administration does feel a little beholden to. And they feel, you know, there is the pressure numbers, we're competing for a small set of students who can pay. And that, I think, works into the PR part, you know, to be seen to be doing the right thing is very important to administrators. And if you look at like admissions prospectuses, they're modeling like the Disney world of diversity, they're trying to appeal the try. And I, I see it when I hear our faculty meeting and people talking about, you know, what are our peer institutions doing? This peer pressure isn't just at the student level, it's also at the institutional level. And we have to be within the right band to be seen to be doing the right thing. So that's one thing. But I will say, I think what you're saying and where I take your point is that there is this culture of not wanting to stick out you know, this culture, and we're pandering to it by talking about belonging, which I really dislike on college campuses, which is like, oh, you know, you this cultivate a sense of belonging. And to that point, I really just don't get it. When I was in college, we wanted to stick out. 
We want it to be unique. We want it to be different. But this idea of wanting to fit in and not to be seen, it is worrying to me. I feel like our aspirations are to be middle of the road, content, not stick out. And that's very boring to me <laughs> personally. So I think there is a broader issue of what is it that our students' aspirations are? And there is this aspiration to blend in. I think that related to the issue of students who feel entitled, in part because they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars or their parents or somebody are paying, is paying a lot of money, is that it has led to, again, this is a minority of students, but it's significant, to some students who feel entitled to critique the expertise of their professors. So, of course, if students want to come and engage me about the choices I've made for readings, they, they want to have um, you know, insight into how I constructed my syllabus or why is the assignment structured like this, I'm happy to have that conversation. But I think Amna and I have both seen increasingly students coming in and with requests, uh, kind of in quotes, um, uh, you know, maybe this reading, you should take it out next time around, or you should include something on this topic. And to me, there's something kind of amazing about that to me generationally, because I can't imagine having the chutzpah combined with profound ignorance, uh, to be frank, to have this kind of conversation with a prof. But that to me is intriguing, right? Because institutions have spent the past several years kind of talking about the ways in which students are co-collaborators in knowledge, that we need to learn from our students as much as they learn from us. And sure, broadly speaking, yeah, okay, about life, but about our particular topics, they don't know as much. So that's, I think, an interesting twist here is how that sense of entitlement is bleeding into higher levels of engagement and criticism of the pedagogical choices that profs are making. Again, not that these things should be off the table, but just why is there so little respect for the expertise I'm torn on this. So I went to school in Germany, to elementary, middle, and high school, that is, in Germany. And I chafed under the fact that discussion was not encouraged. That, you know, you sort of was supposed to learn certain ideas and facts and repeat them. I'm slightly exaggerating, but it did not, certainly didn't feel that challenging your teachers was appropriate. And I had luck to uh, be an undergrad in, in, in Cambridge in England where I was really struck in the first week of term to be assigned a whole set of readings and asked a question about them. And I sort of repeated, you know, and summarized what the various authors said. And the first thing that my supervisor said was, look, this is good and you've clearly understood these texts and you're able to summarize them well, but what's your opinion, right? And to me, the fact that you encourage to develop your own point of view and your own opinion. And at times to disagree with your supervisor. I mean, the point of, of that one-hour meeting, which we were privileged to have, was to engage in that kind of discussion where they would push back and you would try and recreate the argument, you know, was to challenge the authority in a certain kind of way. But of course, it was on the basis of a respect for the idea that they have expertise and that they're smart and that they have thought about this. You can come to a different conclusion, you can argue with them, but there is a kind of premise that you have a certain respect for. I want my students to be critical. I want my students to argue and I want them to disagree with me. That is all wonderful. But what sometimes seems to happen is that they have a political litmus test. They have a minority of students 
an ideological students. But to have a political litmus test, and then they say, oh, you should educate yourself, right? I mean, that's a kind of, right, like, like what's wrong with this is that this reading somehow is problematic in way X or Y, and to remedy this, you have to do this. So it's not that they disagree with me, which I welcome and cherish. It's when, and again, this doesn't happen often, but it does happen when they say, you know, this is unacceptable and we should be doing something else. And so they're not willing to engage with an idea. What bothers me is when they combine a feeling of knowing better with a refusal to actually engage with the ideas that you want to present in the classroom. Yasha, I think in great part, this is that purity thing that we were talking about, right? They have decided what is pure and impure and whatever is impure, there is no benefit for them to engage with it because somehow it taints them. And to understand that, listen, nothing is pure, things are complex and you can gain so much from engaging with all kinds of things, problematic ones especially, I would argue, even more than the non-problematic ones. And that kind of emphasis on purity, of thinking that somehow any exposure to things that will be problematic will blunt them or tarnish them in some ways, I think is the problem. And I will say, I think one of the issues, as you were talking, it was kind of making me think about, you know, why is it that the small minority can have such a big voice and influence? I think to some degree, it is this notion of allyship that has been so dominant in our discourse about anti-racism, about anti-sexism, and this notion that you have to be an ally and speak for others and stand in solidarity. I mean, there's a lot to be said that is good about that. But I think it's taken on a tyranny or a dogma of its own. It's become this thing where people feel compelled to perform their allyship. And once you begin to perform things, I feel like then the currency is the performance. That is your social currency. How well do you perform it determines how well you will be accepted. So I think that piece of you must step and use your privilege to play ally has done sadly more damage, I would argue, than good for thinking critically. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the significance of what Amna and I call DEI Inc., mm right? The standard DEI model that you see prevalent on campuses, because what you see happen in cases like Hamlin, Hamlin's interesting because it scrambles the typical politics that you might see on Fox News, right? This was not like a liberal snowflake, right? Making some sort of complaint. The religion aspect gives it a slightly different flavor. But the point I'm trying to make is if a student brings an issue to a DEI administrator, that message can be addressed, right? It can also be amplified. Mm. And I think that the adults who are in many of these offices, to me, any student complaint, come to me, come to me. If I was the adult in the room, I want to hear you out, right? I want to have a discussion. Then the question is like, what do we do with this? And I think that administrators have fueled all of this, you know, the discourse of harm, kind of the standpoint epistemology, the allyship. And if you're a student and you're young, and you're just kind of figuring out how the world works, and here's an avenue by which I can be validated, to use the terminology, and score political points when my peers hear that I've made some sort of complaint about problematic content. So again, I have infinite patience for our students. It's our colleagues and other adults in the higher ed system 
who, again, and this is one of those things where it becomes binary. People are like, what are you saying? You don't care about students? You don't use trigger warnings? Like, what? You don't give a fuck? It's like, no, I care deeply about my students. But there's a difference between care mm. and unwavering validation and affirmation of whatever they're saying. And part of that is that you always have to build in fail-safes in any system of laws and regulations. I mean, this is a thought that really is as old as the idea of institutions or governments against bad actors. And like you, I have great patience for the great majority of my students. But as in any other group, there are some bad actors. And so when you have administrations of some American colleges institute anonymous hotlines where you can report people for so-called microaggressions, you're obviously giving an enormous tool to people who may genuinely misunderstand how a remark was meant, who may have a score to settle, who may be deeply unreasonable, and that then puts everybody else in fear. And so to me, part of this is the lack of self-hygiene where you have sensible mechanisms for hearing out the student and if there's something to the complaint when you figure out how to address that but if there isn't anything to the complaint you're also able to say sorry but this is not the sort of thing that we're going to fix for you you know if you look at you're alluding to so-called bias response teams right and Amna and i've written about them a lot and that's how we got into this world yeah. of looking at what's happening in the higher ed space but if you look at the way that they work they're amazing in that the outcomes are almost predetermined because mm. it's the language that they use. They ask for information about who was the victim, right? Who was the perpetrator? It doesn't even have those basic mechanisms that you're describing or even basic, you know, I don't know, principles of jurisprudence, like innocent until proven guilty. But I wanted to come back to the microaggression thing and try and draw some connections here to what accounts for the fear that some students have on campuses and how that is genuinely inhibiting a potentially rich discussion. So I had a student who was from Morocco, and we were talking about microaggressions, and somebody had told me, it came up in this class that as part of New Student Week, there was kind of a microaggressions 101, and they were telling me what it looked like. And I said, well, do you think that that had any impact, whether positive or negative, on the campus climate? And this Moroccan student said, well, you know, what I can say is that I am a sophomore, spring term sophomore. I am so eager to talk about where I'm from, to tell people about Moroccan culture. I want to tell them about Marrakesh. I want to tell them about my upbringing, the similarities and differences between the U.S., People don't ask me where I'm from because they're afraid it'll be perceived as a microaggression. So if students are brought into this institution at the age of 18 and on day two, you're getting microaggressions 101 and it says thou shall not ask somebody, where are you from? I don't think we should be surprised that they take that on board. I would have just stopped saying it as an 18 year old. But to me, that's genuine and profound loss. Here's this wonderful environment with people from all over the world, and you can't even engage to reap the benefits of this diversity. And what's interesting about this is that I think there's a pattern here, which I see with a lot of these kind of progressive slogans in American culture at the moment, where you take something that is understandably an irksome experience, but then you overgeneralize in really troubling ways. So I absolutely understand that there's many Asian Americans in particular who are born in the United States, raised in the United States, 
And people then say, where are you from? Well, this perhaps no longer happens, but a few decades ago, they might have said, oh, how come you speak such good English, right? And I understand completely that that is an alienating experience because you feel completely off the place and you're made to feel like you don't fully belong to the place. But to then say, hey, here's somebody who has clearly an accent, who's clearly from somewhere else, and suddenly can't engage them anymore about these basic, interesting biographical facts. I think another case of that, by the way, is cultural appropriation, where there are obviously some bad things that have happened in history that are now within this American vocabulary described as cultural appropriation. When you think of white artists stealing the songs of Black musicians who were barred from having a career themselves because of the extent of racism in the 50s and 60s in the United States, for example, right? But it's been so overgeneralized that even healthy forms of being influenced by each other in a diverse society which make up, you know, the great majority of cultural progress in the history of humanity, people appropriating parts of a culture of another group and making it their own and creating something new, then come to be sort of regarded under this general pole of suspicion. So I think it's sort of, it's another example in that kind of series of entries. Yeah, yeah. But this is weird. I'm genuinely confused by this, right? Because if you think about the intellectual moves made in the 80s and 90s by people like Paul Gilroy, the Black academic scholar, there was a turn towards a sort of cosmopolitanism that really upheld the value of cultural mixture and exchange. Mm. And it led to my mind what have been the best and most powerful critiques of concepts of race, right? And challenging the idea of racial purity. And in some ways, I remember being, you know, I was younger, but thinking, what's the 2.0 version of this going to be? Because I was excited about it. It just felt like an explosion of super interesting scholarship that was really rich. 20 years later, I feel like we've regressed. We've, we've gone backwards from the 1.0 vision or understanding of diversity, where these racial categories that we had fully deconstructed, at least in certain corners of academe, have become reconstructed and reified in this very dumb way that I'm sure we're all familiar with, right? That certain values are like white supremacy culture, like objectivity or precision, or this idea of cultural appropriation, that culture can belong to a certain group of people. It wasn't just the 80s and 90s. There were all these pioneering path-breaking scholars in the 1920s and 1930s, people like Elaine Locke, who's basically like, you can't own culture. Right. And every cultural advance, every interesting literary artistic movement has come out of cultural ferment, right? The Harlem Renaissance would be the quintessential example with Alain Locke. So to me, it's just, there's an odd thing where I think the left, Anthony Appiah, right? This culture of contamination, just that vibrancy, that sense of play and that the left has retreated into this much more schematic blocked out sense of identity is one of the things that enrages me the most because A, I think it's empirically incorrect, but B, it just makes intellectual life much less fun. And for me, this is fundamentally and profoundly where I get bored with this project and why I think that it's not just a matter of us going too far in the right direction or being a little bit overzealous in pursuit of something good, but being fundamentally opposed to the kind of world in which I want to live. So for me, you know, the reason why I am on the left and the reason why I value the left is its commitment to free speech, is its 
commitment to cultural hybridity? Is it rejection of that kind of idea that cultures need to be pure and that we have to be afraid of the ways in which we might influence each other? And that to me is sort of, you know, really one of the most profound reasons why I didn't recognize myself in that version of the tradition. Can I connect this to what we were talking about earlier and then say something more, which is, you know, we're talking about the kind of DEI ink on campuses, bias response teams, microaggressions, et cetera. And I'm thinking more about what does this do, right? What is the net effect of it? And there are two things that I find happening. One is that this kind of emphasis on how you might have been offended makes you live right here, right? You, you cannot look beyond yourself. It promotes a certain kind of navel gazing. It makes you more and more self-involved. And that's detrimental, I would argue, at this age, especially because teenagers tend to live right here. The whole point of college is to try and see that you are part of a bigger whole or that you can forge connections and that the world is beyond you to create that empathy, right? So that's one. The other thing I think it does is precisely what Jeff was saying, which is not only does it make you more navel gazing, it inhibits exploration of difference. So now if you can't ask where someone is from and kind of be curious about it and delve into it, mm. that reinforces that navel gazing. So the kind of person we are creating is fundamentally not suited to what we believe we want to create, which is a sense of community. This person is no longer able to connect with a larger whole. We are inhibiting their ability to do that. So there is this tension in the discourse itself, right? Where it's like, oh, we want community. We want kind of harmony in this community. And at the same time, you're creating individuals or at least giving the facilitating the kind of individuals who cannot look beyond themselves. But this makes me also think about two things. One, I think the Trump era and what it did for college campuses was particularly dire because I think of the kind of rhetoric that he was espousing and not just him, you know, he emboldened a lot of other people to do the same, I think has some role to play in making people more dogmatic on the left. It's not my approach. I don't like it, but I can mm. understand that this is coming from a place of wanting to counter the man with the biggest microphone in the country or the world, arguably. Mm. And it kind of breeds that extreme and intransigence breeds counterintransigence on the other side. So I do get that piece. But where I think this is very worrying is when it comes to the level where no self-critique is allowed and where anyone who does critique is shut down and is immediately demonized and othered. So that echo chamber and that creation of these silos becomes very, very pervasive. And I think Jeff and I can say from our own experience, you know, initially when we got into this space of critiquing the left, I think people just were very eager to dismiss us as people on the extreme right or right-wingers. Then when anti-CRT bills started coming and that started impacting campuses, we started critiquing the right. And then they seemed to be very confused about how to box us. And then on top of that, we are critiquing the right and critiquing the left simultaneously. Then we get told off for, this is not the time to critique the left. We need a kind of united front. And I'm like, no, this is exactly what breeds that kind of groupthink that mm -hmm is inimical to what the kind of society we want to have. And then we're critiquing the left. So for instance, we critique DEI Inc. And then the right is like, yes, see, people on the left are critiquing DEI too. We should. And then we're like, no, even though we critique DEI Inc., we do not think state legislatures are the answer. That confused. Then people don't know what the hell to do with us. They're like, 
they're genuinely confused. But, and that speaks to the state of current public discourse, which is so binary but, that there is no room for people to understand people who don't conform in those very typical so, oppositional ways. But, but I want to ask you a question, Yasha, because I think that when Amna and I first got into this space, we were convinced that most people at academe would raise their hands and be like, oh, yeah, what Amna and Jeff are saying makes sense. We thought that we were part of a big group of people. We thought it was common sense, basically. <laughs> Only to find out that we were, at least in terms of being vocal, a vanishingly small minority. So the whole project of persuasion, I'm just curious what your take is on that kind of the last decade of intellectual life. How have you made sense of it? And were you kind of surprised that you had to... Mm make a specific space by launching persuasion because it wasn't there in the mainstream press. Yeah, I mean, this feels like a group therapy session now. But <laughs> <laughs> everything you're saying is resonating very strongly. I think it's striking that I would say about half of professors in the social sciences and humanities and perhaps the sciences at broadly top universities I feel have roughly similar opinions. They'll disagree on a whole bunch of points, but I feel like are roughly in a similar space. I mean, a few are to the right and a lot are to the left. I don't think left and right is actually the right way of putting this, but for the sake of a conversation. But in terms of who speaks up, it's a very, very, very different image. And that's because the polarization of our public discourse does make it such that any criticism of the left immediately is seen as an argument for the right. I don't believe particularly in the argument that America would be served better by a system of proportional representation. I think looking at countries that have a system of proportional representation has a set of problems of its own. But one of the great advantages of a political system like Germany, for example, is that when somebody on the left has a really stupid idea and their politician, let's say, for the Green Party or for the Social Democrats, there are people from other left-wing political parties who have an institutional incentive to criticize that bad idea. And it's obvious that when they're doing that, they're being, well, you should vote for the Social Democrats rather than the Greens, or for the Greens rather than the Social Democrats. And it creates a public culture where it is somewhat easier, not always completely easy, but somewhat easier to push back against bad ideas on your own side while immediately being tarnished as oh, you secretly you know, running interference for the other side. And America, when I got to the country, which is not exactly political paradise, I mean, George W. Bush was president and certainly there was polarization and all of those things, but it still felt like you could have intramural debates and nobody would think that therefore you're secretly on the other side. And in my mind, what's happened, I read some psychological research, which is really interesting, but actually people are relatively open to in-group critics. When somebody is perceived as an in-group critic, they are actually taken seriously and their objections are given real consideration. Unless there's a sense of outside threat. And the moment that there's a sense of outside threat, the in-group critic is treated as badly as an out-group critic, or even worse, because then perceived as being a potential traitor. And I think that's why what you were saying, Amna, about the rise of Trump resonated with me very strongly. That is a very credible outside threat. A politician who really is dangerous to our political system and also to particular members of groups within our broader coalition. And so we're now in this world where suddenly anybody who criticizes anything on the left has been seen as, you know, secretly running interference for Trump or being a traitor or not 
playing ball at a moment where we just have to hold together. But the irony, of course, is that this ultimately helps people like Trump, because I'm deeply convinced that that form of authoritarian populism and some of the illiberal tendencies on the left are sort of the yin to each other's yang. They actually need each other as foils in order to succeed. One question that I have for both of you, I think most people who listen to this podcast are already going to be broadly convinced of this, but why is it that you're critical of the right? Lay out to me, you know, if you think that some of these orthodoxies are a problem, if you're critical, as I believe you are, of some of the ideas of critical race theory, then why shouldn't we cheer when Ron DeSantis comes in and passes an anti CRT law? What is the basic case for why that is the wrong response to these developments? I mean, I feel like some of these things are so, like one, let me start with state censorship. I just can never get behind it. Let's begin over there. I think it lays the wrong kind of precedent. I'm very against state interfering in higher education in particular, because this is a place where we are in the business of training critical minds and citizens. So this is not a place where we should have thought police. And this is thought police from the state. State intervention Having seen it play out in my own country and many other countries and having read history, it's just you don't have to do much to know that this does not go down well. So that's the first place that I would begin. I'd also say that, you know, to be clear, I'm not even in favor of state intervention on my side. So let's say in New York, there's been a bill to try and mandate the teaching of certain things like CRT and social justice courses. And it's ill-defined what those are, but they're kind of a response to what's happening in places like Florida. And I actually detest that too, because frankly, there is something sacred about the autonomy of higher education, which should not be meddled with by external forces. Now, this is not to say that there are not problems in higher education. Like you said, we're critical of some of the things, but I think we have a big enough tent to work these things out ourselves. I think this happens periodically. There are crises with every institution and we will self-correct. I do believe, you know, many people are upset about the fact that the academy leans so liberal and left and there's not enough conservative voices. I think that's a problem. I do. But at the same time, I don't think, I genuinely do not think that the liberal professors are doing a poor job of educating their students. I think we're not like indoctrinating them. I don't buy that narrative. I think they're occasional bad actors. I think they're bad professors, but I think on the whole, they do a really fairly good job. So to me, this is a huge political kind of haymaking point for the right right now. And it's legitimizing legislative control of higher education. So that to me is bothersome. And I wouldn't stand for it if it was happening from the other side either. And in general, state or no state, saying that there are certain things that are off the table for discussion in an academic setting, is fundamentally anti-intellectual. And we cannot, cannot have that, especially in higher education. Yeah, let's bring it to a specific example, Mm -hmm. right? So to my mind, in addition to all the things that Amna just outlined, if you think about the essence of academic freedom in the classroom is the latitude to present your material in the most accurate, powerful, transformative way, based on the expertise that you've developed in your field, right? So if you look at one of the provisions of the so-called Stop Woke Act in Florida, it says that courses can't include any content, I'm paraphrasing here, any content that advances the notion that racism is embedded in U.S. institutions. Hmm. 
So to my mind, I'm a historian. I'm an Americanist. That actually means that you can't teach any U.S. history class because there's no serious U.S. historian that I'm aware of teaching at a college or university who would reject that basic proposition. And you know, it's beyond our time here, but if you gave me five minutes, I think I could lay out a case that would definitively show the ways in which systemic racism, especially anti-Black racism, has been embedded in U.S. institutions. So in that sense, you're not just kind of crushing these abstract principles of academic freedom, faculty governance, faculty autonomy. You are prohibiting you're inhibiting, like, to the extent that truth exists and knowledge exists. You're basically saying, we don't care about that. And in fact, you can't disseminate what is the overwhelming scholarly consensus on key questions. So that I chafe against on so many, so many levels. Well, not just that, Jeff. I mean, I think if you can't teach that race is, you can't even advance. Let's say, so you're not teaching it as a truth. You can't advance that in your classroom as someone else having said that. Mm. Then you can't even make a case against it, let's say, right? Which is not the case I want to make. But to discuss it, you have to have those counters on the table. And if you take them out, you can't even make a case that would be in favor of the right, let's say. So in Florida, when they were doing the initial hearing for the Stop Woke Act, Judge Walker, the judge asked the state lawyers, what would happen if you had a guest speaker zoom into your classroom making the case for affirmative action? Would that violate the Stop Woke Act? And he said, yes. And to me, as soon as you say yes, like, end of story, let's pack it up. This is an intellectual dead end. Yeah. I mean, to me, when I read the legislation, as well as some of the reporting about it by FIRE and other good organizations in this space, that's what struck me most. You know, I agree with you that there's certainly systemic racism in the United States and that that is what helps determine some of our current reality. I think sometimes actually some of the strange sibilabs of the progressive left today only makes sense because they're ignoring systemic racism because some of the things that they're blaming on sort of more active forms of ongoing discrimination have a long-term impact of past systemic racism that obviously Mm -hmm. continues to have impacts today. But to me, what most struck me is the prohibition, for example, in public colleges in Florida to teach about things involving identity politics, which is a very important category. And I teach these weeks on free speech and on cultural appropriation and on other topics. And part of what I see my task in the classroom as being Mm. is to give students the tools to come to their own conclusions about them. I don't make any secret about my opinions of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am a critic of many of the writings of critical race theorists like Derek Bell. And in the classroom, that can become obvious. I certainly am against the idea that everything that might be considered cultural appropriation should be put under a general pole of suspicion. But I obviously want to assign readings that defend those ideas or assign very interesting readings by somebody like Derek Bell Mm -hmm. in the classroom for students to be able to make up their own mind. And so the idea that I wouldn't be able to teach the class that I teach in other universities in a public college like Florida seems absurd to me. Well, but think about what they're doing along these lines, Yasha. To my mind, if you think about kind of the two basic goals of higher ed, right, to develop critical thinking and to prepare students for lives of engaged active citizenship, you're disempowering those students and you're actually rendering the world illegible. Mm. Like I referred to Trump's, you know, opening speech when he announced his presidential run. 
his anti-immigration rhetoric not only can, but in my view, must be understood in the history of xenophobia in the United States. And you can draw direct lines. And if students don't have that historical understanding, like the world just becomes this morass of confusion. There's no anchor. There's no context. There's no history. And so, I mean, it doesn't even matter what your politics are, to my mind. If you want a Florida graduate from one of their many excellent you know, public universities and colleges, you want them to be conversant in the issues. And to me, these things like the Stop Woke Act have the potential to really degrade the quality of thoughtful citizenship, irrespective of what your party is, mm-hmm. right? You will be disempowered as a citizen if you're so grossly ignorant of some of these big historical trends that are more or less off the table with this brand of legislation. I think both the left and the right are doing and playing this thing about protecting the students, right? The left is very much about protecting their feelings and, you know, their dignity, identity, however you want to frame that. On the right, they're using the same thing about protecting, interestingly, protecting them from divisive concepts and protecting them from K through 12, like pornography. And to my mind, I'm like, to both sides, I just want to say, Are we or are we not interested in living in a world with adults? Because we are creating the perfect circumstances to further this infantilize our students. And it's no mystery to me that increasingly every year the freshmen who come to campus seem less and less capable of behaving like adults. They do not have the simple skills of what our students call adulting. And I'm just worried that we're going to be stuck in a world where we have a lot of people who have a lot of growing up to do, but who have grown up in years and are in positions of power. That is a scary option. We've seen a president in that place who's behaved like a juvenile imbecile, frankly. And and that's what happens when people don't know how to actually be real responsible adults, self-reflective adults. So neither side is making a good case for education and Mm. training adults. Mm. This feels, uh, frankly, a little bit like a meeting of minds, and I would love to talk for another two hours, and I'll, I'll have to get you back on the podcast sometime. But to close the conversation, we were talking about how difficult it is to feel over left and to reject these liberal ideas, whether they come from progressives or whether they come from people like DeSantis or Trump. But it strikes me that whatever the difficulties of this in terms of building an organization like persuasion, and I can tell you it's much easier to get charitable donations if you're very clearly on one side or very clearly on the other side than it is if you're in this space, or whether it is the difficulties of existing on a campus where I'm sure some of your colleagues are less than pleased with what you've been saying. It strikes me that you're both really good at speaking up for these ideas in a joyful way that is self-confident and that doesn't either fall into the trap of overqualifying everything too much as for you're somehow ashamed of what you're saying or becoming sort of a jerk and saying, oh, these assholes, and I'm just sort of barking my objections. So how do people who are listening to this and who want to emulate that, whether it's in the circle of friends or perhaps in the workplace or in some more public realm, what are some tips you might have for how to do that? How do you speak up about these ideas in a way that's true to your principles, that's self-confident, and that's not going to unnecessarily provoke or make you sound unnecessarily like you're a jerk? Well, we want the answers to all of these questions, too. (laughs) (laughs) 
will say, I do think that it helps if you genuinely try. And I struggle with this too, so I don't want to come across as having figured this out. But seeing anyone you were talking to, whether they're on your political side of the spectrum and you're disagreeing or whether they're on the other side, like to really, really genuinely try and appreciate that they too are an individual who have as rich an internal life as you do and are truly, you know, you can disagree, but they are complex individuals. I think there is a tendency even among us, right? It's natural. You try and other the other and flatten them into a caricature of them to some degree. And I think just remembering that, no, you know, they have different facets to themselves as well is important. And the other thing is, Yasha, I've never had, I mean, I don't know whether this is a product of upbringing and context, but I've never had the need to fit in. And I think if you keep wanting to fit in, if you need that kind of approval, then you're not going to be a strong voice for things that need to be said at difficult times. So I do think that it requires, I kind of feel stupid saying this because I don't believe myself to be brave or courageous in any way. And when people come up and say, Say, oh my God, that was so courageous of you. I'm like, no, courageous is when you stand up to the Taliban and have a bullet shot through your head for uh, saying you want education for girls. You know, that is courage. This is just like, I have nothing to lose. I have tenure. So to my mind, I mean, I think it's a strange moment when this is courage, but I do think that people need to kind of do a more strict cost benefit analysis and say, well, you know, the cost for speaking out is way less than I actually thought and speak your mind. I think that one of the, I don't want to call it conceit because that's too glib, but one of the promises of liberal arts education is that professors, the college campus community will help model what it is to be a citizen in a democratic society, right? And I think that if professors take that role seriously, especially those of us who are lucky enough to have tenure, then we need to enact that kind of citizenship and to model what it looks like to speak up, hopefully in a respectful and constructive way, but to speak up for the views that you have. Because if we can't do that as tenured professors, how are we possibly expecting our students, whether it's while they're in college or afterwards, to be able to embrace their civic roles. So again, if we really believe in, and I do, in the magic of the liberal arts experience, especially a residential liberal arts college, there is something wonderful about it. And it's a privilege to be on a campus in an environment like this. Then let's take it seriously. Let's model that act of democratic civic participation where we can engage with one another, sometimes on tough subjects with which we'll disagree, where the community doesn't splinter. And we are able to meet up the next Friday night around the dinner table and have a dinner party. And just normalizing disagreement. I think we've, and recognizing that disagreement is what is absolutely essential for a pluralistic democracy. You know, it's not going to work otherwise. And then Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. This was so much fun. Yeah, real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod 
at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.